0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by
2: advertising outside the UK. In a world where change is constant, it pays to look beyond your
3: borders. The Financial Times offers a global perspective to give you a deeper understanding of international markets and emerging trends. Broaden your horizons and widen your influence. Fearlessly pink. The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless.
4: BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Anita Rani and welcome to Woman's Hour from BBC Radio 4. Good morning and welcome to Friday's Women's Hour. We have a packed show with a very powerful lineup of women for me to speak to, but then that comes with the Women's Hour territory. In fact, one of them is sitting opposite me right now. I'm not actually going to introduce you. I think if I just ask you a question and you speak, people will know who you are. How are you? How's your morning been? It's been fantastic. Thank you. And it's so lovely to be here. It's wonderful to have you here too, <laughs> Lorraine Kelly. In front of me, we'll be talking to her in just a moment. Also on the programme, award-winning broadcaster Gemma Kearney has spoken out about the racism and misogyny she's faced during her career. She made a decision, a very bold decision, that it was time to call it out. And I'll be speaking to Gemma about her experience a little bit later. But this morning, I'd also like to hear from you about when you decided enough was enough and it was your time to speak out. When have you taken action drawn a line in the sand, stood up for something that you felt was holding you back. Please get in touch and share your moment with me, whether it was something at work or something in your personal life. It takes a lot to find the courage to call something out and take a stand. Tell me what you did. And how it played out for you. Get in touch in the usual way. You can text me on 84844. You can email me by going to our website. You can also WhatsApp me or leave me a voice note. And the number is 03700 And if you'd like to get in touch with us via social media, it's at BBC Woman's Hour. Also, how many of you are watching the new series of True Detective? It is so good. Well, the breakout star and world champion fighter-turned-incredible actor, Kaylee Reese, will be on the programme. I binge-watched only two episodes last night because I had to get to bed because I was here in the morning. So good. Also, Jodie Foster, obviously brilliant in it. Lots coming up on the programme. And, of course, your thoughts and opinions welcome on absolutely anything you hear on the programme. That text number, once again, 84844. But to my first guest. Lorraine Kelly, CBE, has been described as the queen of morning TV. She is the queen of morning TV. She joined TVAM as their Scottish correspondent in 1984 and, save for a brief maternity leave 30 years ago, has barely left the schedule since, for the last 14 years, as the host of ITV's Lorraine. Now, after a lifetime of wanting to, she has finally written her first novel, The Island Swimmer, a story of family secrets, island communities and overcoming fear. Lorraine joins me in the studio to discuss the novel, your life, your career. 40 years, Lorraine. I know it's crazy, isn't it?
0: 40 Is it years. crazy? How does it feel? Do you know, it's strange um, if you'd said to me, you know, way back when I first joined, because um, I joined TVAM as Scottish correspondent, the best job in the world and I loved it and I never had any sort of thoughts about you know coming south and sitting on a pink sofa it really wasn't it just was never i never thought about it at all um, and only it got asked to do some uh, really for Holidays after Lockerbie. And, and then I only brought enough knickers for a week. And
2: then sort of like,
0: you know, 40 years later, here I am. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been amazing though. I love it. I'm so lucky to be doing a job that I love with a great team. And every day's different. It's like this. Every day is different. You yes. talk to so many different people and it's been, it's been
4: incredible. But none more different than what you're going through right now because after yes. a broadcasting <laughs> career of 40 years, you've written a book, a novel, what, what, or something you've always wanted to do? Always. I mean, I was really lucky. Um,
0: You know, we, we lived in the east end of Glasgow and my mum and dad might not have had very much money, but they always made sure books were very much a part of our life. The library, To be honest, we went to the library in Bridgeton in Glasgow and I virtually lived there. I mean, it was the world, wasn't it? You walked in the doors and there was the world was yours. And my mum taught me to uh, read and write before I went to primary school. So um, I was a bit of a swat (laughs) in that sense. But always, always had books, always reading, you know, always talking about books. So it was very much sort of ingrained in me. But I never thought I would get the opportunity to do it or indeed the time. And I just basically, I just basically was a hermit.
4: Yes. And well, I didn't go out. Well, well, let's talk about the book before we talk about the process. Yes. Um, the story, because actually writing, a, wanting to write a book is one thing, but actually thinking of know. knowing what you want to write sure. about. Was the story always there? Tell, tell us a bit about it. Kind
0: of. It. It's always going to be set in Orkney because I love Orkney. Why I, Orkney? Um, I, I went there as a reporter back in 84 uh, and I go back every single year because I just love it. There are some places that just, they pull you back. You know that way you go somewhere and you think, oh, I'd quite like to go back there one day. it's it's like, I need to go back. And I still haven't seen everything that's going on. So Orkney is very much a character almost in the story. But it's really about a young girl who you find out why she has to leave Orkney. It's quite traumatic um, and very difficult and very deep. And she has to leave. She tries to rebuild her life in London, but she doesn't feel she's worth anything. You know, she's got that sense of, I don't deserve happiness. I don't deserve a good relationship. Um, And then she has to go back to Orkney 20 years later when her father gets really ill. And it's trying to rebuild bridges. It's trying to come to terms with tragedy, misunderstandings. There's a very toxic relationship with her sister. Um, And... At the end of the book, some things are resolved, but not everything. It's not tied up in a little bow. Um, some of these relationships never get resolved, um, which is why I'm not done with these characters. I was so sad to say bye-bye to them, Anita. Yeah, they, what, because so they, live, sad. they live in your head. They do, and they're real. You know, I can see them. I can absolutely see them. And it's so interesting because a lot of writers have said to me, Marion Keyes in particular, mm. has said to me, you don't know where your characters are going to take you. Yes. And I used to say, how can that possibly be? You're writing it,
4: but I get it. I understand it now. I got very excited when I saw that Marion Keyes had commented on the book because <gasps> I thought, oh my god, Marion Keyes no. I mean that's the ultimate that stamp of approval the, That's it
0: really, I mean that's it now that's just wonderful, but so far I mean it's only been out for a couple of days officially, um, but so far the reviews have been so lovely and that's all, I just want people to, to dive into it and to enjoy the, you know, to, 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 to like when I read a Maeve Binshee book Yeah, I'm right there in the world that she's
4: created. And your characters um, will draw people in and you get to feel a sense of them straight away. And it's a really diverse cast as well.
0: Very much so. Very,
4: very much so. And I think the the
0: device of uh, the fact that there is a wild water swimming group or is Freya, who's my my favourite, Freya's a wise woman. She's in her late 70s and she's kind of at the heart of the story in she's many tra- ways. trans woman. Everybody, yes, but it's kind of like, you know, when she's 15... She is Freya. She was Magnus, a wee boy, uh, living in a a small island. Um, And everybody just accepts, oh, there's Magnus, it's fine. You know, he's that's what he is. And then he becomes Freya. And some people get it a wee bit wrong. But what I really wanted to do was to show that we're all... Different, but essentially we're all the same. And Freya is just a woman. Um, she is a wonderful She can be a bit interfering at times. Sometimes she takes it too far. But a lot of her is based on my grandmother. My grandmother was one of these, um, oh, she was an incredible what woman. What was her name? Uh, Margaret. She was okay. called Peggy. And she used to, like she always said to me, from when I was tiny, she would say, don't save anything till best. So my grand, she would festoon herself in scarves yes. and massive, you know, colourful, Jewellery, she'd spray herself with tweed perfume. Every time I smell tweed perfume, I'm back with my grand. But she would do that, and he said, to take the bins out. I mean, she just was somebody who said, seize the day. And that thing of how...
4: Often- I love that she was such a Scot that she had to spray herself in tweed. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> she
0: sprayed herself <laughs> with the perfume. But she was amazing. And and I love that attitude mm. of, you know, don't don't keep things for a bit. We all do it, don't we? We get a really beautiful dress and we think, oh, well, I can't wear that or those shoes. And yeah. we sit
4: there in the cupboard gathering
0: dust. It's crazy.
4: No, I made a crazy. change. I've decided that it's when, if not now, when? Exactly. Just Exactly. Don't save exactly anything. To right. But the 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 how many people have asked you specifically about talking about Freya and the surprise that you've put a trans character in? There?
0: Yeah, because I wanted people. Because in the book, you get to know her first, and then you get her background a little bit. Yeah. I don't go into it in huge great detail because you know she's just Freya, and she even says herself, you know, I just want to be accepted for who I am. That's all. And I think that that was the message that I really wanted to get across mm-hmm. was the fact that yeah, we're we're all we're all just trying to go on with our lives, and everybody's different. In that sense, but everybody's the same. We've got an awful lot more in common when we actually start talking to each other um, than we have that separates us. And and she is very much part of the the whole community. All of the stories. I didn't really realise that at the time, but when I look at it now, all of the stories go back to Freya. She's connected to every single person. She is the person like she she's the one who who has the selkies. They're called the the swimming group. Called, a selkie is like a mythical creature, half woman, half seal. Mm. And Evie is very frightened of the water. You find out why Mm. and you can understand why. Um, And it's all about and it's all about as well women supporting other women and holding them up, whether they're holding them up physically in the water or just holding us all up emotionally. It's it's about that too. Uh,
4: yeah, and as you say, swimming cold water swimming features in the book, and it's something yeah. that you do yourself. Well, with, yes. on your Instagram, I, honestly, very foolishly. And you said
0: the first thing the where, first time I ever did, I did it, Antarctica. I do not <laughs> recommend this. I, I mean, I think this was quite silly, um, but I did go in, and because we, we were doing this fantastic trip to Antarctica, where we're following in the footsteps of Ernest Shackleton who's my absolute hero beyond, you know, I am just love him. So that for me was like, I was like a child. I was like a toddler. And when they stopped at Deception Island, they said, look, if you want to, you can go in. And I put my swimming costume on ready, but I took all my clothes off, you know, really fast and left them on the beach and ran in. I kept my hat on and my gloves, ran in, very quickly ran out again. Yeah. And I could actually see, I couldn't feel anything at all. So I couldn't get my clothes back on because they we're all inside out. And I was trying... <laughs> I couldn't feel anything. So I had to sort of go back to the wee boat and I could see the ice forming on the hairs of my arms. Oh, no. But do you know what? I yeah. have never felt more alive in my life. Would you do it again? Are you doing it again? I do it again. I I do it in Orkney. I've been in... the oh, the water up there is beautiful. I did in the Thames, but the Thames is a sort of greeny brown and I don't even want to think about what's in the Thames. So I don't do that anymore. I do the crystal clear waters of Orkney or up in the Highlands.
4: And is this about making yourself feel healthy yeah. and vibrant? And what, what, is it this, is. A, is this a new so journey things. that you're on about health? Well, not,
0: not so much. It's, it's just you just feel more alive mm. and it's really good for your mental health as well. You know, you, you actually do feel better. And the bonding with it's, it's usually women, but I know men have groups as well, and there's mixed groups. But you have the most profound conversations yeah. when you're out of the water and you're sitting, you know, getting dried off, and you're having a coffee. If you want to put a little bit of whiskey in your coffee, that's quite good. And having a big cake because you know you you must, and um, and you really. I don't know, it's like breaks down barriers. And it's people like can you're talk
4: kind, kind of vulnerable, aren't you? Because you've yes, just done something so extreme yeah. together. Exactly,
0: but you're all in it together. It's that sense of being
4: together. And I think, you know, we've lost that somehow a little bit. So it's good to get that back. Um, I want to ask you about changing I mean I know you haven't changed your career you've just added another string to your bow because you've got so much time obviously oh yeah loads (laughs) how did you find the time
0: to do this I I, like I said I was quite selfish and my husband was great because you can't do things like this on your own nobody can do anything on your own you can't do this on your own you know you obviously have a great team round about you but my husband picked up a lot of the slack and when I was on it, when I was writing, I was really, really writing. Because for me, it's a full-time job, writing a novel. That's why I waited for so long. But I sort of feel at this stage, you know, I'm there's a lot of big milestones this year. I'm going to be 65, my daughter's going to be 30, 40 years in, in breakfast mm. telly. It just felt like the right... Time and also, and I'm sure you're the same. You sort of, it's not based, the book isn't, the characters aren't based on anyone in particular. There's a little bit of my grandmother and Freya, but it's about the fact that you've been talking to people for so long, people have trusted you with their stories, yeah. and you can pick up things. And just by listening, you know, you can pick up lots of different traits of people and you can put it in the story. And there's a lot of fun in there as well. There's mm. a lot of laughs and, you know, and, and a really good sense of humour too. So, and I wanted to get the light in the shade too.
4: Um, I think you said a word there, trust. And my next question was going to be, how have you managed to stay at the top for 40 years? But I think just sitting here, and you have interviewed me, so it's such a brilliant (laughs) privilege in my life to be able to be interviewing Lorraine Kelly. I think, Pete, we trust you. I hope
0: so I hope so and that really is down to just being there every day you know it's it's about that um, and, and also I do try I always think and I always say to anyone who, who says you know I'd love to do this job or I would like to be yep. a journalist or whatever you really have got to do your homework that's first of all you've, obviously you've got to do that um, but you've got to listen and it's mm. never about you and give people the opportunity to talk I mean sometimes that's quite hard because I've only got a certain amount of time to talk to someone um, but It's really important that you do the work. That's all I would say, do the work. That's why when I was doing the book, I actually enjoyed the editing process because I do that every day. It's like you, I get tons and tons of information about a guest and then you've got to distill it into, and in your head, have two or three bullet points and then just go where the conversation takes you.
4: But now that you're forty years in, if when you sit down, I don't know if you have, you probably have, and reflected, <laughs> yeah, because you know you've uh, your parents, you know you come from a very working class background sure. in Glasgow, and here you are, I the know. queen of daytime oh, TV, well.
0: the Dodo Duchess, For,
4: forty years. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's still a great title
0: uh 40 years in I know it's astonishing isn't it well ha, where, where did that come from where did your confidence come from oh I don't even know if I've got confidence I've still got a wee bit of that working class cringe where you think you know somebody if you're if you're somewhere posh have you? somebody's going to tap you on the shoulder and say I'm terribly sorry you'll have to leave um I don't know I think I think from my family I mean I think from my mother I'm so glad that my mum likes the book and because my mum will tell me in the morning she'll say what what was that? You know, like, what were you wearing? Or what was your hair like? Or why, more to the point, she'll say, why did you not ask this question? <laughs> She's really good and very, you know, and, and I don't, I've never kind of, I don't know what a celebrity lifestyle is, I need to I've got no idea what it is. Well,
4: you were on Graham Norton yesterday. Well, that was, Come on, oh, that is pretty my celebrity.
0: Can you tell me, us about that? I was the that? only person on that sofa that I had no idea, you know, who didn't know who I was. <laughs> I mean, they, I, you know, I had no idea who I was. It was just magical and funny. Now, I don't think I could have done that even 10 years ago. Honestly, you know, Why? sitting beside what? Olivia Coleman and Jodie Foster. I mean, come on. It's still that thing of you can't quite believe you're there. I mean, I do remember interviewing Buzz Aldrin, the you know, second man in the moon. And that was, yes. for me, the ultimate interview. I mean, it was a terrible interview because I was fangirling all over him. And you probably thought... More than George Clooney,
4: you were fangirling.
0: Much more than George And even now, I look up at the moon because my dad bought yeah. me a telescope when I was five and we watched the moon landings together. And I look at the moon and think, I've actually spoken to a person whose feet, whose body, who was on the moon. How amazing is that? Amazing.
4: I know. And I love that you... uh I've mentioned him because I know you're a big Trekkie as well aren't you I you do love well Trek. original Star Trek yeah, Mr original, Spock obviously. The, the
0: spin-offs were fine you know as it goes but original Trek I watched that as a, as a kid and I loved that because way before for goodness sake you know what the state yeah. of America was like in the 60s this was even before the moon landings and we had an amazing black woman absolutely in the crew we had diversity the first, first
4: mixed race kiss Exa- ever on with, TV
0: with Captain Kirk and Lieutenant yeah. Nahuru I remember it well Mr Spock I, was my first crush I I still do love Mr Spock. Yes.
4: Me too. Um, Amazing. Yes, half Vulcan, half <laughs> human. I mean, we could go on, we could do a, like, we could do a do, whole do a podcast about Star, Star Trek. Trek. <laughs> Lorraine Kelly, Anita podcast. Or just oh, talking wait, about Star Trek. But you mentioned the diversity of cast Yay. there. And we're going to be talking to Gemma Kearney, who's spoken yeah, out course. about she uh, what, what she's experienced in this industry. I can't not ask you about how you've sure. seen things change as well as a woman in this industry and things that you might have experienced. It
0: has changed a lot, but I was very lucky, Anita, because when I was the correspondent for, for Scotland for TV. Um, I just come from the BBC in Scotland where they told me I'd never make it in broadcasting because of my accent. Um, so, but that was the best thing that they could have done. Because back then nobody spoke like me, nobody spoke like Anton Deck, you know, it just wasn't like that back in the early 80s. But it spurred me on to get a job at TVAM. And of course I was the only person. So when things would come in, head of politics, me, head of sport, oh, that's me, head of news, oh, that'll be <laughs> me that, then. Isn't that confidence? <laughs> it was a ama- well, it was daunting, but it was, it was fantastic. So we covered all the big news stories, but I also covered sport. And back then they didn't really have women on telly? There was some, a couple of trailblazing women writers for on football, but not you know, but not on TV. And it meant you were underestimated. And as a woman, sometimes people do underestimate you. But it meant that I got great interviews because their guard was down. You know, all these managers and players, they didn't really expect, you know, because then, oh gosh, I was only in my, my late 20s. You mm. know, and they didn't really expect that. And actually,
4: I don't mind being underestimated. I'm very happy with that. It's fine. <laughs> uh, do you think there is, uh, do you think the culture is, uh, the same now in that there is space for more Lorraine Kellys to come through? From. No, I don't. And it worries me greatly because, you know, I was from
0: like the Gorbals, Bridgeton. My, my husband joined the BBC from Dundee. He was an electrician in Dundee mm. and he was a teenager. And he came down to London to work for the Beeb. He used to press the button that made the TARDIS go up and down. You know, the thing in the middle of the TARDIS? I mean, come <gasps> on. How, impo- how impressive is that? That's very impressive. I know. But he came down and the BBC put him up in hostels in Notting Hill. I mean, those now are probably flats worth, God knows, 10 million, not worth, costing 10 million quid or something. But he put, put them up there so they, the young people, both in front and behind the camera, um, were able to have the opportunity to come to London. And I was helped with rent when I was in London. TVAM helped me. Now it is purely a financial thing. Mm. So the voices of a lot of working class men and women, you know, in, whether it's Glasgow, Newcastle, Birmingham or whatever, we're not hearing them because they can't afford to live here and they can't afford to make that breakthrough. So you're, you're going to have a situation where we don't hear their voices. And I find that really sad and actually I, it really annoys me as well because we should have more opportunity, not less. And I honestly don't think if me now, you know, b- back then, yeah. you know, way back then in the 80s, I don't know that I would have had, would have been able to do that job. I wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been able to afford it, to live here, or I wouldn't have got the opportunity.
4: Well, it's wonderful that you are there <laughs> and that you are now embarking on this new writing career. Uh, did you enjoy the
0: process? Will there be more? Loved it, loved it, and I, I, like I said, I've got unfinished business with all of these characters. So, book two—that there are there—are some. Yeah, I, I can't say goodbye to them. Anita. I I can't. I Can't let them go. We don't want you to. I know. So I'm going to. I, I already. I'm working on the second one. But
4: does that mean you'll be taking more time away from Lorraine? No, no, not really. I've been I've because been you ha- know there's this. Uh, there's this. Th- I know. It's but the, the amount of space that I occupy in
0: people's heads is quite bizarre. There, there have, is a, a satire account set up on x
4: it's uh, tracking your appearances on the show I know. Ten
0: thousand got followers it's fine i don't mind i don't care i probably would have cared before but i really don't know it's absolutely fine to be honest I, I am having you should never comment on things like that if you don't know what's going on in people's lives but i am having to take quite a few fridays off because my my mum's really not well yeah so um I, I can go home now and spend some more time with her because you know and help her a bit more than i than i've been able to um so that's happening just now but that That'll change. Um, But yeah, I've been doing five days a week for, you know, 40 years. So I'm just taking a wee bit of of time off. And obviously this is half term, which is why
4: I'm able to talk to you, which is fantastic. Well, we thoroughly enjoyed having you on. Lorraine Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, And good luck with the island swimmer. 84844 is the number to text. So we've had someone come in saying, first time I saw Lorraine on TV AM, dark, cold, yes. uh, rainy road, roadside, looking like a drowned rat. Not sure about that. I <laughs> did. I said, well done for sticking it out. <laughs> I love it. Um, for anyone who didn't know, Lorraine's beloved Bridgeton Library in Glasgow is now the home of the amazing Glasgow Women's Library, preserving <gasps> women's writing and history for future generations. Oh, I've got to go back. There you go. That's oh, I'm definitely going back there. A one- one- wonderful woman's Wonderful, stylist, that's nurse. great news. Uh, Thank you, Lorraine. Uh, Lots of you getting in touch about a variety of things that we're talking about on the programme this morning. Uh, Thank you for the conversation about what we've done to stand up for ourselves. It's motivating me to reply to a pretty awful letter I received from someone in a supposedly therapeutic role rejecting my request for more NHS therapy because I've missed some in the past due to long COVID. I am motivated now to reply. I will be talking to Gemma Kearney shortly. But first, the deaths of three women in one week All allegedly murdered by their husbands has caused outrage in Somalia and sparked days of protests over the country's femicide rates. Police have named the suspects in all three killings, which took part in the first week of February, as the dead women's husbands. Two of the victims were pregnant. Earlier, I was joined by the BBC's Fadosa Hanshi, a video journalist with the Somali service. She gave me more details about what happened.
5: In the past few weeks, there has been a lot of horrifying incidents that has been happening in Somalia. According to their reports, almost three women have been killed by their husbands. One incident was a pregnant woman and an airport worker died from the injuries after her husband set her on fire. It sparked an outrage and demands for justice from the victim's family and the community. Incidents like this has been happening for the recent weeks. It's not only women who have been killed, it's also men who have been killed by their wives. The, the incidence of the three women has sparked activists and uh, human rights activists are now coming together to, uh, to protest against this incident, yeah, so not let, to happen again.
4: So tell me more about the protests. What, what's been happening? What's been taking place?
5: Most of the community who are outraged by this incident... And this domestic violence and, and this femicide, where have been gone to the streets and they were demanding justice from government.
4: And how unusual is that for women to take to the streets and protest in Somalia?
5: It's not that happens always, but this incident of Lul, the woman who was pregnant and who was panned down, has forced women to demand justice for this woman. And they were demanding justice and they were saying, we want this femicide should not be tolerated. And we want justice for this woman to happen. So it's not something that happens always. But I, I think it's something that's new, that women now are demanding justice. Mm. And they're coming to the streets mm. and want to fight for the rights for other women
4: because the, the case was just so shocking, and it, it, it sent shockwaves through society. Uh, Fadosa, can you give us a bit more of a, uh, an overview into the sort of the situation for women in Somalia, the lives that they live? You know if this is one of the first times that a case like this has created so much outrage that they've come to the streets, what, what's the sort of day-to-day situation like for women in Somalia?
5: Women in Somalia have been going through a lot of process and I feel like now they are in a position where a lot of women are now women in parliament, in the ministries, but it's not something normal where Somali women can be vocal and can talk about their issues openly. So it happens now in a time where women are going through femicide and we are seeing there is change on that because now women are standing for other women and they can openly in social media and also in the streets to demand justice. It's not something easy but now even in parliament if there is a presentation and there is vocal uh, women who are now demanding justice mm. and I think there's shift on this now compared to where women
4: were before. That was the BBC's Fadosa Hanshi there. Lots of you getting in touch with various things that you're hearing on the programme this morning. I'm, I'm asking you if there's ever been a moment where you've stood up for something in your life. Uh, Serena says, I took action last month by starting a petition to reform the UK honours list. Was fed up of hearing of too many people being given awards which didn't chime with what the honours list is supposed to be about, celebrating ordinary people who do extraordinary things to help make the world better and another um, email here I was called it I called it out in the 80s as one of the few black front of camera reporters newsreaders I was told that I was taken on because I was black told to stop being Bringing black stories, whatever that means, to the morning meetings, news conference, being black and in the media spotlight, as I was in the 80s and 90s, pre the explosion of social media, it was possibly a more frightening and lonely place to be. I had to tackle my experiences single handedly and privately. People I approached to call out the racism in the industry were afraid to come out publicly for fear of the consequences for them. It was mentally and physically exhausting. We'll be talking a little bit more about that shortly. But first, to my next guest. Kaylee Reese is the breakout star of the TV drama series True Detective Night Country, acting opposite Jodie Foster. It's so good. I'm so excited to be talking to Kaylee. Their characters, both police women, have a fraught relationship.
2: Here's a taster. We can work together and figure out any. <laughs> no. I'm not working with you again, ever. You think I want to work with you? I do, actually. Yeah. Take a look in the mirror, Liz. No one can stand you, except for that poor kid Pryor. Will you be breaking his heart real soon? Get out of my scene. Go on.
4: I mean, it's... It's just spine tingling. The final episode of the series, which is set in Alaska, airs on Monday. And anyone who's watched it may be surprised to learn that Kaylee switched careers from professional boxing to acting only recently. Kaylee is also an indigenous rights activist of Native American and African heritage and was the first indigenous woman fighter to become a world champion. I am delighted to welcome you, Kaylee, to the Woman's Hour studio. Thank you so much. Have we made you a cup of tea? No, I'm good, though. You're good. good, All right, good. Um, and this is only your third acting role. This is only my third acting role, not my last. i only not, my third. I mean, definitely not <laughs> your last. We know that because you're electric. Um, but may I just ask, because we played a clip there yes. between you and Jodie Foster. And I know you're a world champion fighter. But what was it like being put in the ring with acting royalty? Jodie, like it's you and it's Jodie. And there you are. Go for it.
2: I mean... At first, it was terrifying, but all good things or things that have a good result usually terrify you first. And I knew it was going to be an amazing experience. I mean, I was just such a fan of hers and to be able to work with such a legend it's like working with any legend in boxing that i've dreamed of ever even meeting and having a chance to learn from somebody like that in my very like kind of really early on in my career it was a dream come true and I, I learned so much uh i went into this job as you know learning and having coworker, but i left with a friend like she's so she's my calling my homie that's my homie <laughs> love oh, that's amazing good homie to have
4: how do you even prepare for that though
2: Ah, life. Honestly, it's crazy because I get asked the question a lot, of, are there any similarities from boxing to acting? And actually, I feel like I've been training for this acting, um, my entire almost 16 years professional, um, boxing. So it was more or less learning exactly who, what the story was, what the character was, and kind of just taking the authentic knowledge of who this character what this story is really the core values of what we're trying to portray in this in this um in this story and also just really getting the perspective of the inupiaq people and the inupiaq um Background of because I'm indigenous, I'm Cape Verdean Wampanoag but I'm not from there, so it was really important for me to understand the experiences, tell me some stories. I want to know how they wanted to be represented on screen. I mean,
4: we know the True Detective franchise; the first one series started uh, starred Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey, which was brilliant. Uh, I'm a fan, but watching this with two female leads um, from the female perspective, it was an absolute game changer. And you also had a
2: female showrunner, showrunner, yes, uh, that's Issa Lopez. Yes. I mean, it was the contrast between the two. I mean, it's the obvious contrast with two male leads being the first season and amazing first season. And you have the two female leads. I mean, and then we can go even deeper saying the first season was bright, sweaty, hot. And now you have the Alaskan dark cold. Um, But Issa being the showrunner, writing an entire series under this entity, massive machine of True Detective, English not being her first language, and coming up with this amazing story that fits under the True Detective umbrella, and you have these two female leads that actually work in a real male-dominated profession, and you get to see that perspective. I think as females, though, it's really interesting to see how... Um, these detectives, these pe- these people, can relate to the crimes and the in the victims, and we see that with your opening scene.
4: Yes, because your character Navarro uh, has come to well, possibly arrest a woman for assault, but then ends up arresting the man instead that yes. she hit.
2: Yes, I mean it was it's kind of a perfect opening to oh, okay, I know exactly what what this woman is, and it especially it speaks to volumes to the reality of of situations like that. How tough was
4: it? You you mentioned uh, filming there in Alaska and it's very dark. How tough was that experience filming there? Because it's, you were there for seven months. Yeah, we actually filmed in Iceland.
2: Because um, filming in Alaska, I mean, for the what we needed and, and the locations that we would need to go to, it's so remote and the, the, it's just people from Alaska, they are so resilient and survivors because they are built different for that type of an Come environment. On. So we filmed in, in Iceland. Well, we actually had a chance to bring a lot of Alaskans and Greenlandic native peoples to Iceland to create this, this, this great world, this this world. So the weather conditions, it was cold. It was definitely cold. Um, it was actually one of the coldest winters they've had in almost like 100 years, of course. Um, but it was, you know, we had this family-oriented community type of vibe on set, and, it, and Iceland's beautiful. I mean, it was just the people, the food, Food. And um, the darkness definitely is the same way it would be in Alaska. Uh, but we get to look up and look at northern lights. You know, what I mean, well, there's something
4: quite I mean, magical about Iceland, I absolutely. would say. And there's something quite mystical uh, running through the storyline of True Detective as well. Did did the scenery, did the setting add to the script and the experience of it all?
2: Absolutely. And also to to touch back on the Indigenous aspect of Mm. the story, I mean, the creation stories that we have as Indigenous peoples, anywhere you go anyway, are fascinating. And then to learn about... Theirs are, was so interesting and Issa had a way to wrap that right around into the, the actual story of, of True Detective, Night Country. And, but the atmosphere in Iceland, it's very energetically charged. They even have their own folklore and their stories. And we were there on the holidays and they were explaining all their different beliefs and the elves and the fairies. So it definitely added to that aspect being in Iceland and having it just be the exact same theme that we were going for.
4: Now, your character Navarro is obsessed with the cold case of a midwife and actor who is brutally murdered, but there are no suspects. And uh, this is a storyline with a lot of resonance for you as someone who's been involved in campaigning around missing and murdered Indigenous women.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I did my best to just bring awareness to different issues in the Indigenous communities, such as missing and murdered Indigenous women and people. I have a platform. I have a voice. And, you know, I was always raised to dance for those who can't dance, fight for those who can't, and just be a voice for the voiceless. So I'm bringing awareness because it's such an issue that does not get the type of attention. I mean, MMIW, the hashtag is fairly new, um, but it's just to bring the awareness to stop the violence and stop our our missing women from from going missing. So the fact that we were able to highlight this very real real issue in this this very well written story um it just added to what isa was doing in her previous work anyway she highlights missing or murdered women um of mexico and mexico city because she's you know she's from there and that's something that happens all the time so anytime i can bring awareness to it um i will take the chance
4: i just wonder you know, maybe this is a way of bringing more awareness to a wider audience.
2: Yes, exactly. It's just a different audience. Like with boxing, people who normally wouldn't hear about it, it's not a mainstream media. So, somebody who would never necessarily look for a type of political or issues like this are going to get a taste of what it really is and then further have the, uh, you know, want to know really what's going on because it happens next door. It happens a lot often than people realize. And,. It's not something that happened, it happens. You know, that's the difference.
4: And you really do explore the sort of internet, intersectionality of race within the program because your character does say if she was white, yes. this, her murder would have been
2: solved. Absolutely, and that's another reality. I mean, I've heard of, I've sat down with many um, survivors, many victims' families that have said they were in fear of having their loved ones not looked for, so they reported them as white or not Indigenous or Native um, because it gets really hairy with jurisdiction and what, what policing and it just gets really, really unfortunately kind of, they, it ends up being a lot of cold cases because they don't know where to put it. All they just don't care.
4: Hmm. Now there's a large cast of native American women in the show.
2: What was that like to be part of? It was like being part of a family. I felt like I walked on set um, and there was a, just a bunch of my aunties there. I mean, all you hear is laughing, love, energy, um, just love to talk and it was just amazing to see them walk on set and feel at home and to see there wasn't just one Indigenous character they were in every part of the story whether it was just at the laundromat in in the streets in the corner store as Navarro it was just amazing to be able to see ourselves in every part of this.
4: I'm just wondering about you changing career from boxing to acting and I mean it's obvious why you are so successful, because you are brilliant on screen. Thank you so much. Uh, And you have a real physical presence as well, um, and that you can see your strength and power. So how did you get into boxing?
2: I was really sporty as a kid, but nobody in my family boxed. It wasn't like it was passed down. I just... Really was attracted to the solo aspect of fighting. Um, it's one of those things. It's self accountability and going through some things as a kid, not having that outlet, or maybe kind of being confused about a lot of things. My like, race like being what? one of them. My race being one of them. I mean, being from two different backgrounds, being Wampanoag and Cape Verdean, or Afro Indigenous or Black and Native. I wasn't Black enough for the Black kids, or Native enough for out of my outside of my territory. And that's one thing that we face in in um, North, North America, in America, is that people think this one dimensional of an indigenous person and you're Native American so you look like this. Mm. Well, indigenous, the word indigenous means you, you are native to the actual land in the area of your ancestors. So that was really confusing to me being the youngest of five kids, my parents getting divorced. I was just like, where do I fit? Where do I fit? Um, sports were great, but I just really even struggled with my sexuality. I mean, not, uh, the term two-spirit was kind of a newer term, and I didn't know it as a kid, but I learned in my teens, and I identified myself. Explain. So two-spirit is basically what... Um, Indigenous people use in their own way. To me, it means I'm completely comfortable and walking in my masculine energy 100%. And I'm also completely comfortable walking in my feminine energy and energy 100%. I'm not attracted to a sex or a gender. I'm attracted to people's souls. And it just how happens that I was more comfortable being with mo- women, with being with females. But then I would just maybe have a date with a guy. It wasn't something that I'm supposed to be this, but also coming from a household where my mother is Indigenous, she was also Christian. So I just was very confused <laughs> as a child and I didn't know where to fit in. I didn't know where my place was. So the individual responsibility you have to have as a fighter. Um, if you don't do something, you have nobody else to blame but yourself. Uh, so I just got attracted to it and I wasn't like this talented super world champion coming out. I got, I got pretty beat up my first fight and it was one of those things where I stopped and it was like either this isn't for me or how do I make that not happen again? And I took that. How do I make that not happen again?
4: So, I mean, I, you're saying that you weren't that talented. I don't believe you. You don't <laughs> become world champion by being not that talented. So what is that? Just dedication? Just, That's you- hard.
2: That's something that you can't teach. I mean, I come from a long line of warriors and my ancestors, and it's something that you can't teach. Like, I, I welcome failure. Like, I want to know what I did wrong so I can fix that. Mm-hmm. I wanted somebody to tell me that I do everything right. But it's just a relentless resilience that is just in my veins. And I just, you can't teach heart. You can't teach heart now and this would you encourage other women to get into boxing absolutely and even not just a, it's not just punching somebody in the face it's the discipline of it it's the seeing the progress it's feeling your strength you feel like you could defend yourself mm-hmm. if you need to it's it's you know it's a physical sport obviously you feel you're getting your body moving but i absolutely would encourage everybody especially women to get into boxing
4: i've done it myself and i can
2: i can vouch for it it's a great stress rel- i was gonna say it's stress a really good stress relief. reliever too um
4: you talk i'm really interested in what you're saying about your masculine energy and your feminine energy yes. and encompass it both because we see it on screen. Yes, we see you um, when you've got your uniform on. You know, arresting men and being all powerful and and angry. You mm-hmm. have rage in you. Yes, um, and then we see you this real softer side of you as well. And I just thought it was really effortlessly done. Yes. We, we were seeing the essence of you.
2: Yeah, honestly, I brought, you know, there's myself and Navarro are different in a lot of ways, but there was a lot of similarities, especially going into this acting. I find similarities first. How am I like, because I won't be attracted to doing something unless I can find some similarities in myself. Hence why this story is such a great story because all the characters are relatable. So... It it was very easy to kind of navigate that part of Navarro because I myself, you know, I'm a, when the bell rings, fierce fighter. I have to be very physically. It's a very it's a very masculine energy type of job. Yeah. But then, you know, I'm such a Virgo lover, peacemaker, want to nurture and take care of. So, and so is Navarro. She wants to take care of her sister. She wants to protect these women. And that's a combination of the two. She has to be fierce, but she has to understand what at stake for for these women who are victims.
4: And how is your new
2: life in the acting? Well, the life of the lovelies. It's it's it's. It's interesting. I mean, it's it's. I love the best thing about this. I love seeing my family's experience through this. Like my experience and their experience is completely different. My mom's elated about it, so it's, it's treating me well. Like, okay.
4: And and very briefly, Lily Gladstone, the first Native Americans become nominated for an Oscar. She won the Golden
2: Globe. She. I mean, your reaction to that? I was folding clothes when the Golden Globes were on. I knew she was going to win. I busted out in tears. I cried. I was screaming. I was cheering. I was war crying. Everything. I mean, what? Better, I mean, there's so much talent and there's so many, so much beauty and, and all Indigenous talent. But what better woman to have, just gracing this path and holding the door open and being nominated? She is handling this with such grace and poise and just regalness. And I, just, I'm just so happy to be a part of it. And it's just. Times have changed. It's about time. It it's is about, about time. It is about time.
4: And it, you are doing the same, I must say. You are absolutely doing the same. It's been such a joy to speak to you. Thank you, you too. Uh, I cannot, I'm i just going to finish the program and then go straight back to carry on watching the rest yes, of the series. Yes. Don't tell me what happens. I
2: won't. My lips are sealed. All right.
4: <laughs> um, thank you so much, Kaylee Reese. And you can watch the series finale of True Detective Night Country from Monday on Sky Atlantic and streaming service now. Thank you. Thank
2: you so much to Bonnie.
4: Um, 84844 is the number to text. Now, if you remember, in January, we talked about a shocking report which warned of endemic misogyny and discrimination in the music industry. MPs from the Women and Equalities Committee found that sexual harassment and abuse is common. That report has resonated with many women and not just in music. My next guest, award-winning broadcaster Gemma Kearney, has written a piece in The Guardian about her experience in broadcasting and creative industries. She said she's battled racism and misogyny for years last year creative industries generated more than 115 billion pounds that's nearly six percent of the british economy they employ 2.3 million people so you can see why it matters how these people feel about their working environment also joining us is professor sarita malik professor of media culture and communications at brunel university who's done extensive research on diversity uh, cultural representation and policy she's also an advisor to the department of uh, digital culture, media and sports. Welcome, Sarita. Thank you very much. Gemma, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, Why did you want to write this piece? Why now?
1: I think I've had many years in the creative industries and it kind of got to a point where I was sick of bottling up a recurring thought and it comes from many different parts of myself. It comes from me as a professional, as a broadcaster as a writer, as somebody who's founded a production company, as somebody who's chair of a board of the Edinburgh Art Festival. But at the same time, it came from the perspective of somebody who loves broadcast, who loves content, who cares a lot about the industry. Um, And I felt like I was being done a disservice as a lover of radio, for example. You know, I can't help but notice when I'm listening back to back to my favourite radio station and I'm just hearing all white male voices. So this is a complex conversation for me to have, Mm. but one that I felt very, very ready to have at the same time.
4: So what, what made you ready? Why say it now? How hard was it for you to write it?
1: Well, we announced that my production company, which I founded in 2015, Boom Shakalaka, very much for the purpose of platforming underrepresented voices and telling stories in a multitude of ways, um, breaking down the barriers of genre and really reflecting the fact that we live in a multicultural society that I very much believe in. Mm. Um, and the reaction to the closure of Boom Shakalaka, which I founded in 2015, kind of started to speak to me <laughs> um, in volumes. And it was just a few days later that I read the Misogyny in Music report. And, you know, as many have said, I echo that it was unsurprising. I, I'm familiar with the finding and I'm thankful that people are raising their head above the parapet and speaking from a place of truth. But at the same time, I just wanted to scream that a lot of the things that were coming up represent issues far, far beyond the music industry. This goes to the creative sectors as a whole. And I've worked in them all. I've worked in fashion, (laughs) I've worked in radio, I've worked in TV, (laughs) like I've worked in production. I've worked in theatre, I've worked in journalism, and misogyny, and it has to be said, it has to be stated, misogynoir, it's something that we need to be able to talk about.
4: How's it played out for you?
1: um, Representation being a prime example, um, silencing, um feeling sometimes, you know, in an unspoken way like you're being treated differently. Um, I'd be very interested in a kind of rallying for transparency when it comes to pay. I think we talk a lot about gender pay gaps, but I'd be very interested to know about the difference in pay for the ethnic minorities in the creative industry. And it was just about time that I spoke about it, I think. Um, You know, I've put a number of examples in the piece itself but there are many 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 more and i don't want this to be my personal sob story i just felt ready to be a spokesperson for us all to say that we as women and especially if we are women of color deserve more deserve better we need to look at the infrastructure and the systems behind this mistreatment and get through the barrier of uncomfortability. And it's such a shame for me to have to talk about the fact that it is also to do with race. But even in the misogyny and music report, it specifically breaks down that these are the facts. And we have to address the uncomfortability, that we all know who is at the bottom of the pecking order. There is a myriad of issues here, but who are the people that feel it the most? Who is at the brunt Mm. of all of this misogyny it is black women it is underrepresented voices it is our trans community and we have to address it.
4: Well I'm going to bring Sarita in because Sarita you've done some research into this does Gemma's story resonate with your findings?
3: Absolutely. I mean the first thing I'll say that to uh, read this piece and for Gemma to have written it is extremely honest, it's open and it's brave and it's really important that when we try and understand the cultural industries understand the latent inequalities that do still persist that we hear these personal and direct testimonies. It's very important actually to understand the internal working cultures and processes. I would call this as a social scientist qualitative data and it is of of great value Um, and as Gemma's just said whilst it's important to foreground the individual and to foreground the private basis of struggle we do need to look at the structural and systemic and Gemma you know in spite of the idea that the creative industries are sort of organic meritocratic flexible liberal actually when we look at it there are pockets of inequality
4: well let's get into your findings and what's the wider picture like in broadcasting and the creative industries
3: Yes, and we can talk about the creative industries broadly, but obviously each of the subsectors have variations and differences as well. But the three areas that I think are really important to pick up on that really um, sort of chime with what Gemma's written in such a heartfelt way. The first thing is about what happens once you're inside, what happens in terms of the ability, the flex to actually change the culture within the organisation that you're working with. So Gemma references microaggression, senses of belonging, Mm -hmm. talks about this sense of having to prove yourself in spite of the vast experience over many decades that Gemma's had um, and the other area is really around precarity and investment and this is where referencing some of those freelance companies which are often set up because they are the only way actually for those that have otherwise been systematically marginalised to actually make art to be creative and have a creative career chimes with this question of who gets to actually participate in the creative industries and who's most likely to be able to take risks and what we know is there's Deep fragility in the creative industries when it comes to careers. And there are gatekeepers, and this has a particular impact on communities that might be disadvantaged in society. We hear more and more now about downward social mobility as opposed to upward social mobility, which is a pipeline question. Who's more likely to be able to get a career in the cultural industries? What are the blockages? And once in, how do things like pay, promotion, attrition uh, progression, work so it's very much about that internal culture but then the other area is about harm and this is very much something that's picked up in the misogyny and music report which is what are the processes to deal with harm that is felt how do all of these inequalities actually impact in terms of well-being where does one go?
4: Well and how has it impacted your well-being Gemma?
1: I mean massively (laughs) Um, I'm very much somebody that fights hard for a sunny disposition, I'm an optimist I love life, I love creativity I believe in art, I believe art can be a salvation I went to a non-fee paying performing art school, I was at the Brit School age 16 um, being in college was the safest place for me to be I grew up in a troubled home I, I and I found um, a sense of of self-learning in the BBC. I didn't go to university. I was suddenly on One Extra age 23. And I learnt my craft, and I love my craft.
4: I remember. See, I remember. <laughs> it was great yeah. when, you, when you appeared. It was brilliant.
1: <laughs> I grew up kind of in front of everybody, and um, I had a, a ball to a degree, but the minute that I left One Extra, and I was quote-unquote promoted, to be a presenter on Radio 1 which seemed like a big step ever since the glass ceiling has been present i've i've broadcasted on every single radio network i've hosted or co-hosted shows on 1 Extra Radio 1 Radio 2 Radio 3 Radio 4 and Radio 6 and i mean my style my talent my tone my choice of of how i broadcast or what i choose to cover is subjective of course i i completely understand that um not everybody has to like like what i do but the one thing that isn't subjective that is the truth is that i've been my experience i've been doing it for many years i've won awards people ask me all the time why i don't have a regular show and i don't actually have an answer for that. But then as somebody who has decided to pivot my career to protect my mental health um, mm. and move countries, I live in Scotland now, and you know, I'm developing a career as a published writer and very much getting so much from that. It's so expansive. I, I do feel, mm. and it's hard for me to talk about you know, publicly, but on a personal level, pretty let down, disappointed and heartbroken by it. The fact that I don't have a proper answer as to why I don't have a regular, regular show on radio specifically—that is my first craft. But I also do live TV, have and fronted it, documentaries, etc. You know, televisionally.
4: Um, I mean, I'm going to read out a statement from the BBC here who says, um, we employ a huge range of talented presenters and work with many more who appear on our networks as guest hosts to cover shows occasionally like Gemma. Occasionally, presenters won't have ongoing contracts. Gemma last presented for Six Music in November 23, Depping for Lauren on Breakfast at the BBC. We're committed to creating a diverse and inclusive workforce. We're committed to reflecting and representing the diversity of the UK. Um, We were talking about well-being then. How do you then continue...
1: How do I continue? I mean, I love my life. I have a great life. <laughs> yeah. I cold water swim as Lorraine was talking about earlier. Um, you know, I'm 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 a happy person. Yeah. Um, I do so much creatively. But in terms of like what I think about this from a more activist perspective, I know from the reaction of my Guardian piece from some super high profile successful people that it resonates and that we are affected.
4: I want to bring Sarita back in on this because we, I think we need to think about how we change this. Yeah, um, I mean, you—you're you, a researcher. You do a lot of it, a lot of insight into this, that, and. We, there's a lot of nuance, personal, lived experience. It's difficult to treat this as a maths question and to express it in numbers, isn't it? Absolutely. And
3: what I would say and what I argue in my research is that, in a sense, there's two diversity stories. There's a, there's an institutional story. So this is diversity as an idea. In fact, the creative industries, um, we can see how hyper-visible diversity policies are, and they have been over decades. And... This is kind of diversity as a public language, the idea of social responsibility. We think back to Black Lives Matter and the Black Squares and that sense of promise and hope and change. There's that institutional idea of diversity. But then on the other hand, we've got exactly what you're saying, which is this direct experience. And we have to hear that. We have to listen to that. And we have to understand that often the promise of diversity, that institutional story, often bears no relation to the empirical realities of inequalities. And that is not just about numbers. And I think when we talk about inequality, we can't just look at numbers. We can't have this kind of number centric approach where we just look at the data. So data can make visible inequalities that exist, but it doesn't help us to understand the internal industrial culture. Has
4: anyone ever done that? Has anyone ever got that research?
3: The research for the to t-
4: see what people's lived experiences has anyone collated that information? There's very little
3: of it, so data is a really huge issue, and data regimes are a huge issue. And that doesn't mean that quantitative data in itself is a bad thing, but we do need to complement that with qualitative data, and that is the lived experiences that we're hearing from from Gemma and so many other people. So we've got this strange situation, this tension between policy and practice, yeah. between claims and real effects. I
4: mean, sweetie you advise the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport on diversity and inclusivity. The inclusivity, this is your bag. Um, Are you ever worried about these initiatives?
3: I am because I think there's a lack of accountability. I mean, what can account for the fact that we've had years of diversity EDI moving much more to inclusion now, policy making, and yet we are still hearing these stories but also there are other factors at work you know, our population our society, our demographic is much more complex it's much more heterogeneous it's much more intersectional so what the Misogyny and Music report has done is it's, talk, it's talked about gender but it's also talked about ethnicity and race it's talked about misogyny, it's talked about misogynoir now there's a whole question of whether actually diversity policies many of them are fit for purpose in terms of really being able to capture the complexity of the of the population so for me it's not a numbers game in fact if you look at broadcasting And you look at global majority representation, there's not a huge underrepresentation, but it's about where people are within those spaces. It's about decision making. It's about, as I said, the pipeline, which is a huge issue regarding the intersections with social class and disadvantage and privilege. So this is a very complex area. And I'm a little bit concerned about, if you like, the non-effective diversity beyond being, and I will say it, sometimes very performative.
4: Um, Sarita uh, Gemma I'm going to test your broadcasting skills you've got 30 seconds to tell me what you'd like to see happen not that they need testing mate not the need testing
1: (laughs) is that we need to literally look at who is at the top I want transparency as to who's in production who are commissioners who is like coming up with the with the yeses and the as to where the funds are distributed and this isn't just about me honestly this is this is Caused such a huge reaction from so many of my peers this is about us being able to support one another as women and creating a, a fairer equality like amongst what is put out yeah. there and how it is
4: well thank you so much for speaking to me uh, Gemma Kenny okay. and Sarita Malik from Brunel University and thanks to all of you for taking part in the programme join me tomorrow for Weekend Women's Hour that's all for today's Women's Hour join us again next time
3: I think the power of the show was crazy back then
4: the X Factor promised to turn ordinary people into pop stars. We stood there
1: behind the doors when 16 million people are about to watch you go on stage, and Simon just stood next to you like, good luck, girls, good luck. I'm Chi-Chi Zundu. For years,
4: I was a BBC showbiz journalist who covered every twist and turn. I want to go behind the scenes to find out from staff and contestants what it was like.
1: You don't just want average people. You wanted, you know, it was so
2: bad. They were comical. I feel like I was humiliated just for the entertainment.
0: Did the show ever come back and they said to me, Sam, will you come on and do it again? I'd be like, what time do you want me?
4: Over six episodes, I'm looking back at the good and the bad of one of Britain's biggest TV shows. For BBC Radio 4, this is Offstage, Inside the X Factor. Listen on BBC Sounds.